When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, everybody, to this week's edition of Terry's Talkin'. David Campbell, sports manager at Cleveland.com, here as always with Terry Pluto, award-winning sports writer and columnist for Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer. Terry, how's it going? I am doing well, David. Good. Hey, I wanted to start the show with an award that you've kind of won that we came across this week. Esquire has named you, two of your books, among the top 100 baseball books of all time. Weaver on Strategy, which you did with Earl Weaver, the uh, longtime Orioles manager, and The Curse of Rocky Calavito. Congratulations, Terry. Were you surprised it's by this? Really cool. Yeah, because I was looking at the list and, you know, some of the names like Roger Kahn and um, Roger Angel and a lot of guys that were kind of came before me that made me want to be an author. So uh, nice thing, too, I did. I knew Rocky Calavito was still around, the curse of Rocky Calavito. But I wondered if you could still buy a Weaver and Strategy. And actually, I looked on Amazon. You can. So uh, that was uh, that was it, w- it was really gratifying. I was uh, a reader on Facebook sent me the link to it. I had no clue they were doing that or anything. So that's wonderful. Cool. Of, uh, of the curse of um, Rocky Calavito, they, they wrote, like its literary cousin, the curse of the Bambino, Pluto's book takes a symbolic moment, the trading of a beloved player and uses it as the unwitting catalyst. For the team's subsequent misfortunes, the unwitting hero of the book, the heart and soul is pitcher Herb Score. His story alone makes this worth reading. So well done, Terry. That's fun. So my question is, do you get to vote now in Esquire's Sexiest Woman Alive contest because you won this? (laughs) (laughs) Did they mention that as part of the deal? No, they they did not mention that. (laughs) But, you know, they would be very surprised when Roberta's name would pop up there. (laughs) And that's right. how you stay married 44 years. There you go. You're a smart man, Terry. Hey, yeah, let's get in. Right in. <laughs> All right, let's get into some Browns this week. Um, coming off the bye, and it actually the Browns weren't playing, but they actually had a good weekend because the Ravens lost to the Steelers in a dramatic finish. The Bengals also lost to the Chargers. And if you look at the AFC North right now, you got the Ravens at eight and four. The Bengals at seven and five, the Steelers are at six, five and one. And then the Browns are in fourth, but within, within striking distance, it's six and six. Pretty crazy times. It's going to be a Especially crazy finish. Having games against all three of those teams left. Right. That's the other cool thing about this. You know, you get to, you get to play them all. So uh, my, my question is this, David, if the Browns don't beat Lamar and the Ravens this Sunday, Exactly when would they have beat them this year? Probably not at all. I mean, if you look at the Ravens, people say the Browns have had a lot of injuries, which is true. The Ravens have probably been the hardest hit team by injuries this whole season. I mean, you just go down the list. Ronnie Stanley, Justice Hill, J.K. Dobbins blew his knee out 
really early and was out for the year. Gus Edwards, Marcus Peters, Calais Campbell, who always gives the Browns fits. I mean, he's a six foot eight defensive lineman and gets his yeah. arms up. Very hard to throw over or around. He missed uh, the first game with a concussion. He played against the Steelers and he's going to be back. So, but they've been missing him. And this week we find out that Marlon Humphrey's going to be out there really taking a ton of hits, especially in the defensive backfield. So you're right. If they don't, if they can't win this one, uh, that, that's going to say a lot about where the Browns are, right? Yes. And you look at Lamar Jackson, who you know, has been beat up. I'm just looking at his last three games. He's thrown three touchdown passes, six interceptions, and he, um, you know, he's, he's been, he's just been struggling Four of those against the Browns Four of those against the Browns. And it's not like sometimes you throw a fair amount of interceptions, but you're also throwing touchdown passes to go with it. And this guy, Oh, and the 15 sacks. There we go. That's what I was looking for. No, six and six and seven is 13. It would help if I could add, but okay, we're going to do it again. Here we go. Three games, three <laughs> touchdown passes, six interceptions, 13 sacks, and he has stunk. You think he stunk? The last three games. Yeah. No, so, I think he's a good player, but he's been bad the last three games. So, I mean, I guess that's the question is how good can you expect him to be? And, and Tim Bielek, um, one of our colleagues, wrote this for our Browns newsletter. If you want to sign up, by the way, you can become a subscriber by going to cleveland.com Browns and clicking on the blue banner at the top. But Tim made an interesting point. Uh, when you're comparing Baker Mayfield and Lamar, like one of the reasons that the Ravens have done better than the Browns is because Lamar is a great player and he's been able to lift that team up over a lot of these injuries and he hasn't been hurt. But yeah. I, I, my take is like these injuries all around him have caught up with him. And yes. that's, that's why you're seeing some of the stats. What, what do you think of that? Right and right. Yes. In general, the reason they're eight and four is Kamar, Lamar is a great all-around player. He does a lot with his legs and everything else. But the injuries, of that, including, remember, he missed the game also with illness. Um, the injuries have led to him having to try to do more with less around him. And hence, all of a sudden, you're seeing the sacks go up. You're seeing him just having trouble throwing the ball to receivers. Holding it a little longer. Holding it longer. Looking indecisive. Um, and so that's correct early in the year because they have also lost, you know, two of their last three games. In the last three games, they've scored 10 points, 16 points, and 19 points. So you're, you know, could even go back. They're on one of these kind of brown streaks I'm looking now. In five of their last six games, they've scored, they've scored 19 or fewer points. So it's, it's much like what the Browns have been doing. They're not scoring either. They're trying to win ugly. And I'm going to be really interested to see what the Ravens do with their pass coverage uh, on Sunday because they have been playing press, 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 mm -hmm. press coverage. And the Browns being, you know, with no Odell, uh, Donovan Peoples-Jones coming off his groin injury and still, you know, probably not 100%, but the Browns hope he's close. Are, they might come out and press the Browns, even missing all these guys. Uh, it, or will they play more zone? I don't know. I, it, it's it's going to be really interesting. That, to me, is the matchup of the game. Also, you, the Browns have had two weeks to sit around and heal and scheme and all this other stuff. These guys played the Browns. It was a physical game. Played the Steelers, another physical war. Now they come back with the Browns in Cleveland. I mean, David, this is also a, a matchup of not just – to your point about the, the scheme, whether it's the zone or whatever, just a flat-out matchup of coaching. 
if Kevin Stefanski and Alex Van Pelt have two weeks to sit around and try to figure out to score 20 points, because that's probably all it's going to take to beat the Steelers. I'm sorry. Well, probably beat the Steelers when you play them too. They don't score either. <laughs> the only team that scores in the division right now are the Bengals. So whether it's 20 points to beat the Steelers a little later on or 20 points right now to beat Baltimore, you can't figure it out with what you got here. Uh, you've got a problem. I'm going to, I plan to write that too uh, for the weekend that yes, this is a real challenge for them. They can't come up with 20 or more points in this game. They've got a bigger problem than I thought. All good points. So when it comes down to who's going to win this game, uh, Terry, you had a really interesting, uh, we ran some excerpts from your vintage Browns book over the weekend. And one of them was about Phil Dawson. And I know mm-hmm. that you're very, you've done a lot with kickers and especially Phil and Phil has always really gotten into the science of kicking down on the lakefront. This is the time of year, and we're going to see how Chase McLaughlin does in terms of figuring out the wind patterns in the stadium down there. He might figure huge into this game, right? Well, certainly could. And if you remember, it was uh, when we did our uh, Browns, uh, the long preview for the, the textures and that, you know, I was kind of in the minority of banging around about the kicker and made fun of you know, but I'm just telling you right now, in the last three games for Chase, he has attempted six field goals and he has made how many, David? I'm going to say three. Three. Is that right? So a couple from 46. Yep. Three out of six. You know, before that, he had missed one and it had been blocked. But the it's gotten cold. You know, in fact, that almost that lines up with the for his first game in November. You know, Phil Dawson would always say for any kicker, November on tells a story. And for any kicker in Cleveland or Pittsburgh, you know, anywhere in the north without a dome, then we're going to find out how good you really are. And the hard part about it, from what Phil is saying, it, he used to go down to the stadium during the week to, to practice down there yeah. and kind of get But then he finally stopped doing it because he said the wind on Wednesday is completely different than the wind on Sunday and there's no point. So you have to figure all that out in real time and adjust on the fly. And that, that takes experience. There's no doubt. I mean, the last two games, um, McLaughlin's missed 46 yarders. He missed a 46 yarder and what was a 13 to 10 win over Detroit. That would have been nice to have those extra three points. And he missed a 46 yarder early in that game against Baltimore. I believe it was on their first drive where they went or second drive, but early on that game, he missed one. And that, that score was 16 to 10. You know, I, by the way, somebody posted on Twitter and sent it to me, Phil Dawson kicking that one through a blizzard in Buffalo. Oh yeah. Classic. 52 yards with the wind swirling. You can't even see him. It's just this white thing. And there's a goal <laughs> with the ball going through it. And Granted, it's hard to find a Phil Dawson. And if this kid McLaughlin could turn into one, we, we'll find out now and see that would be wonderful because uh, Dawson will tell you his first year, by the way, he was something like nine out of 13 in field goals. Um, he struggled. It took He had to learn how to do it. He says you don't just show up and kick in Cleveland and be good right away. But, I, I, you know, we're, if we're talking about teams that can't score right now, until the, the Browns are now in that category until they prove otherwise – you better kick your field goals. Oh, yeah, and it's a game of inches. I mean, it's a game of field goals and inches. I mean, look at the Ravens ending the other day. Lamar Jackson throws a, a you know, a little out route to – or it was a kind of he, – he, Andrews ran behind the line of scrimmage and was wide yeah. open on that conversion, and it was just 
three inches out right of his grasp. Yeah. That separates the playoff teams from the non-playoff teams. Those kind of plays this time of year, and just like kicking, it's all the little stuff. There's a very small margin for error. So, isn't that interesting how Harbaugh went for the two there? I was anticipating that. I was watching that drive, and I was sitting here, and I said to my wife, "What are you doing here? You going for one or two? And she always wants to go for two. <laughs> and I said, "I yeah, think they're right. going to go for two because you've been in a battle the whole." game it's been very physical your team is banged up you're down a bunch of guys and you want to end it one way or the other and if you have a good play and they had a really good play mm-hmm. uh and it, it, it he was wide open like the, lamar's throw was just a tiny bit off and um yeah my like theory we- and probably someone told me this a long time ago is that um whether you're talking about a series or even a game the longer it goes the team with the more depth and talent you know will win in other words we saw that back whether in 2016, uh, even though the the uh, Warriors were a great team, the the Cavaliers had the best player, and in that one, LeBron wore those guys down. When it was up three to one, and they didn't put the Cavaliers away, you know, all of a sudden, game after game, LeBron after LeBron after LeBron, or in this game against. Uh, excuse me, against, uh, you know, Steelers. when they played the Steelers, yes. They sense, Harbaugh sensed, as you were, that I don't want to play in overtime. We better get it right now because I just don't like how we're playing. Well, and I think you're going to see more of that with the 17th game added. Yeah. I mean, you, you're already having Lamar Jackson on the field for a 17th game, and now you're going to add a 10-minute overtime by kicking, you know. It's like you're just you're opening yourself up to him getting hurt or getting hit in a, in a bad way. I, I thought it was the right call. And, and, you know, to your kicker point, of course, who, who has the, this generation's uh, Phil Dawson only better? Baltimore. Yep. This guy kicks 60-yard field goals. Well, we've seen him kick them in blizzards and tornadoes and everything else. So uh, that's a big point in this game coming up. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he's, he's, his home stadium is an outdoor stadium, so he's not like he's coming from a dome. And so. it is windy in Baltimore. It isn't as cold, but it's windy over there. Because yeah. I, I actually which, lived in Baltimore for years. So puts, yeah, puts even more uh, impressive stats behind what he's done yeah. there, being outdoors. So, hey, we need to talk about something real quick, the tight end situation for the Browns. Mm-hmm. Uh, with David Njoku being out with COVID this week, Harrison Bryant, high ankle sprain. We've written and talked a lot about the Browns love 13 personnel, which is you know one running back, three tight ends. They love to run out of that formation. They love to send the tight ends out into the – you know, um, sideline routes cross, you know, the tight ends are kind of the focus of the offense. David Njoku leads the team, uh, with 407 yards and he's third on the team with 27 catches. What do you think the Browns will do Sunday since they, their usual three tight ends are not around and they brought up uh, Miller Forrestal from the practice squad, but what do you think they're going to do to find offense without the three tight ends that you don't normally have? Well, fans have wanted Kareem Hunt on the field with uh, Nick Chubb for a while now. This would be a way to do it, make him a slot receiver. It's not quite a tight end thing, but you could you could do that. Uh, you also have all kinds of time to prepare. And we will see. I, I guess you could argue, too, how great is this the 13 personnel group been anyway? If the idea is to put points on the board, Great last season, not so great this season. Yes, for whatever reason it is. And, you know, some of this is is Baker. Baker's just not played well. We go round and around how hurt he is. 
Now, I will say this. I mean, I've, and I've given him a lot of the benefits of doubts about playing beat up, and we've had all the debates about when to bench him and that. But now, I mean, he's had two weeks to heal. They keep telling us he's fine or more or less fine or something like fine. Well, that's enough for me. I'm From now on, it's like the last five games, unless he gets hurt again, and that could happen. I'm like, okay, no more. I just want to see you play well. What do you have? Because if you're not ready to go, then you should sit. And we don't need to hear kind of the, some people, I'm not saying Baker, but from Baker's camp, you know, only people in the media know, you know, what his latest injury is or whatnot. So if he's playing, he needs to play. And if not, he shouldn't play. So, all right. So yeah, I mean, what, don't you think so? Dave? I'm sorry. No, I do. I do. And it, it's every week he comes out, people are asking about the injuries and there comes a point where it's just like, yeah, yeah it's time. It's time to move on. And um, you know how you do that? You go Belichick. I'm fine. How's this? Next I'm question. Fine. Yeah. Next question. Yeah, next time. So going back to the, to the chub. Or, and you can say, you can, now, one more thing. You say, you can ask me 50 times. The answer is the same. I'm fine. I don't mean to be sarcastic. I ain't going there. That's it. And you know what? People will stop. Yeah. All right. So I want to go back. So you think that you, we might see Kareem hunt in the slot. Everybody, I think Browns fans envision the old days of Mac and Biner where they're going to mm-hmm. have two backs in the backfield, but you're thinking they're going to have Chubb in a single back set and use hunt and move him around in the slot, line him up on the wing as like a third tight end and use him as a, as a weapon coming out of the backfield, maybe swing passes out routes, stuff like that, sitting down in a zone and trying to run after the catch. Why not? I think it could work. I just was. Yeah. I'm I'm thinking too, if you, if you're playing the game of what does my guy do best? What do I need at the moment? I don't need Kareem blocking for Nick Chubb in the backfield and I don't need particularly Chubb blocking for Kareem. I need a guy to get this passing attack going. I need a player that could find the end zone. Kareem can find the end zone. Better believe it. Put him where he is. All right. Just as some background, this is from our colleague, Dan Lobby covers the Browns. He says, according to NFL stats and information, Kareem Hunt, and Nick Chubb have played how many snaps together this season? Any? Zero. You're yeah, right. I didn't think of any. And how many do you think they played together last season? They were on the field at the same time. How many I'll snaps? say zero. I was surprised. It's higher than I thought. Six. Okay. It was six. So that might be the key for Sunday is, is how the Browns use Hunt to get some offense going. So very I mean, interesting. And now, and, and David, in general, I like the idea of you not wearing out either running back because it, it, they're both elite. They both have a slightly different skill set, and you're trying to play more of a long-term game with those guys. But now, with five games to go, and especially this game, they lose this game. It's over, isn't it, for them? Yeah, it's over. I mean, you're six and seven. Baltimore goes to what is that? What would that make them? Eight, nine, and four. Yep. If they win, if they win, yeah. If, if Baltimore beats the Browns, they're nine and four. You're six and seven. You're buried in the wild card thing too. So this is the game to act like it's the playoffs. And if you have all these plays for Kareem Hunt to be in the slot or do something else or be in motion or whatever it is, which job out there? Let's see it. It doesn't have to be on the first drive of the game, but let's see it. Well, and I do wonder if the Browns regret not having Nick Chubb on the field for that last drive in the first Baltimore game. I mean, Dearness John, be... we talked about that last time. Dearness yeah, John, I ravaged them there. for that. It's dumb. 
Yeah. And if you're, you're right, Terry, there's five games left. And if they're going to go down, go down with your best players on the field. Also, you, I, you, you I think owe that's that the way we're going to go. They're going to go. You owe that, David, you owe that to your players. You've been asking them to play hurt. I'm not just talking about Baker, but so many guys this year on every team. And the same way, I'm sure right now, whether Harbaugh, of course, Harbaugh in his mind thinks, you know, if we do take a beating in Cleveland, it's still not over for us. You know, he doesn't want to, but it's like it's he's in a different situation. So then he goes to what, eight and five. He's still in there. Because Cincinnati lost, you know, Pittsburgh, you probably even though they beat him, it's like, boy, it's just hard to imagine them running off, you know, what so they're what are they, six, five, and one? So they got five left also. Yep. It's hard to imagine them winning four of their last five. So it's not as much desperation for him, but for the Browns, this has got to be an everything in game. And if they win it, they will be one game out of first place. Go figure. So, yeah. hey, the weather on Sunday looks like it's going to be 42 and sunny, so there might not be a Phil Dawson moment. One o'clock kickoff, and then the Browns have two Saturday games after that. They're playing the Raiders at home on the 18th. and then the. By the way, do you know, but Phil would object to that because he would say, yes, it's not windy. But when the temperature gets below 50 at all these things and how many yards you lose on your field goal because the ball and the air temperature and all that. All the science behind it. He's yes. like walking. I used to like say he was Dick, Dick Goddard in an orange helmet. <laughs> all right, let's take a break, Terry. When we come back, we'll talk a little Cavaliers. Uh, we'll talk a little bit Christmas, getting together with people, some tips you have for people on how to survive the holidays. We'll take a few Hey Terry questions. And we've got some Terry's trivia that I'm guessing you're going to get every week. You I got to come up with harder questions. You get these every week. So we'll see how that goes, but all right, we'll be right back on Terry's talking. All right. We are back on Terry's talking David Campbell and Terry Pluto. Terry, let's get into some Cavaliers. Young team played some pretty tough teams this past weekend. They lost to Utah by a point. And the next night they went to Milwaukee and lost to the bucks. They were in it until the end, couldn't come back all the way against the reigning NBA champions. What did we learn about the Cavaliers these last few days? Well, first of all, the teams they lost to aren't just good. They're veteran teams. I mean, Utah, Utah in some ways reminds me of the Cavs of the Price Doherty era, you know, that they're really good. They just can't get deeper into the playoffs. But nobody wants to play those guys in the regular season. And nobody, you know, who wants to play uh, Giannis and Milwaukee anytime? In fact, one of the things watching Milwaukee made me think, you know, this is kind of where the cast could go in the next few years. Uh, I'm not saying that Mobley is going to be Giannis. I've heard some people compare him to that. But Mobley is going to be special, you know, at that size. So you have him with that, and then you surround them with some hard-nosed, tough players uh, and some size. Because remember, they didn't have Brooke, they didn't have Lopez, one of the Lopez's brothers in that game. He's always kind of a protector for them, for Giannis. And, you know, hard-nosed coaching, that could be them. That could be the Cavs. So that's what I saw in that game. And, you know, look, it just showed for the, a couple of people say, the Cavs could play for a championship now. No, they're not ready for that. We could still keep talking playoffs with them. Yeah, and one of the things that I thought was interesting the last few days is just uh, Darius Garland has gone from being, you know, as a rookie, oh, he's too, he's too slight, he's not strong enough mm-hmm. to where 
the second year people are saying, okay, we can see this coming along. And now we're seeing the point where he's continuing to mature, continuing to grow 30 point games, right back, back to back 30 point games. He's averaging close to 20. And then Monday night, the bucks come out and they say, you know what, we're going to, it's like a bill Belichick approach. We're going to take Darius Garland out of the game and really put, you know, Middleton and really make it rough on him. If the other guys beat us, that's okay. And that's kind of a next stage for a superstar level player, isn't it? To where you go from being a consistent high score to now teams are preparing just for you and you have to figure out how to, yeah, how they, to, how they, to they jumped him. You know, they started a lot too with the drew holiday on him. An I'm sorry. Team. Drew holiday was who they yeah. had on him. I said the Middleton, Middleton was switch out on him. I mean, they were just, well, oftentimes they were too. They wanted him to get rid of the ball 35 feet or more away from the basket, right. As he got past half court. Um, and also what played into that game is I thought, thought Rubio's, you know, like Rubio's age periodically is going to catch up to him. He's playing back-to-back games, you know, against Utah. And then here, he just he just couldn't make a shot or, or not. So the Cavs are going to have to begin to game plan a little bit that with when, when they're doing that to, uh, uh, to Darius, have Rubio bring the ball up and run Darius around some picks and get him open. So, But the fact is we're having this discussion is shocking to me if you were to go back even a year from now, much less two years from now, uh, two years ago, rather, if you go back a year ago or even two years ago, but he, say a year ago, you're saying, oh, yeah, well, if you shut down the chaos, what do you want to do is just get the ball out of Garland's hands and frustrate him. But that is probably going to be the game plan for a while. Now, the Cavs have, you know, some other guys that could bring the ball up. That's one thing. Even Mobley could bring the ball up. Markkinen can bring the ball up. They, they have guys that can do that along with Rubio. Um, so, but I'll tell you this, David, if Coral's going to go 0 for 6 and have a minus 20 on the floor in the 18 minutes he played, that's what happened against Milwaukee. That's a problem. Well, that was the next thing I was going to ask you, Terry. So is Isaac Okoro the key to getting the Cavs to the next level where if he provides a decent level of offense, mm-hmm. what kind of impact will that make? Because he's now he's not, he got, he goes from being an offensive liability to an offensive. If he's a plus player offensively, that changes things, just, doesn't it? Just don't kill you. Get 10 points. Because remember, yeah. he brings size and defense to the backcourt. They need that with Darius. Darius is not a good defender, and he's small. So that doesn't mean he's awful, but there's always – just about every player has a weakness. And when they when they were used to play Sexton and, and Garland together, they were so small and so weak defensively in the backcourt, it killed the big guys. Uh, so one of the nice things about having a Coral there is he could take the shooting guard, he could switch off into a small forward. Um, he can really help them defensively. But you've got to do something, and also – he in his own mind, he can't just sit there on the three-point line and think, well, I'm just going to be a catch-and-shoot guy. That's not him. He's going to, he may be catch-and-shoot, but you got to go to the rim and, and use some of his athleticism. He's got to figure out how to score some. Um, and Because that's, you know, that's a key part. Now, he's only in his second season. And the, I think if one thing we've watched over time now is uh, when he bring these guys out and they're 19 years old, um, most of them are overmatched. And it takes a couple of years for them to get it together. Because uh, it's like people compare, well, he was a first-round pick, and, you know, and I don't remember when this guy's a first-round pick and that guy. and uh, But most of the time, uh, those guys you're thinking back, those, especially those of our age, 
they played three or four years in college. I remember when I covered the Cavs for the Beacon Journal, they drafted Brad Doherty. He was 20 years old, but he was a four-year college player. He went in at 16. Mark Price was a four-year college player. Larry Nance was a four-year college player. Ron Harper was a four-year college player. Um, Craig Ewa was a four-year college player. You go down that whole group, not just three years, they played four. And if you also consider that some of the guys that Dean Smith coached, uh, Brad Doherty, um, Mark Price was coached by Bobby Kremens, really good college coaches. So not only were these guys uh, in school for quite a while, they were under good coaches for several years. And they were just physically mature. You look at a 19 or 20-year-old next to a 23-year-old, there's usually a big difference. Yeah, and I think Cavs fans are starting to get that a little bit. Like, yeah. they, you know how Cleveland fans can be sometimes? It's like, all right, th- our team's terrible. And then it's like they want to be in the NBA finals like the next year. And I think I, I think with this team, fans are having fun because they're appreciating how young they are and they're appreciating the defense and how they're playing. And they're kind of enjoying the process a little bit more, the building, than we usually see. Do, do you see that too? Might might you think about that? Yeah, in way? fact, I have gotten some emails. And when I did a book signing last night at Learn It Out, a couple of people mentioned to me. Uh, that it reminded them of that just group I just talked to before, talked to you about before with Doherty, Price, you know, when well, Nance came into trade, Doherty, Price, Harper, et cetera. Um, and sure, that's, a, that's something that you can see uh, developing. And also, they're pretty good at not letting the ball just stick with one guy. They tend to make it move pretty well, even when Garland is, is coming up. That was the one disappointing thing, I thought. At the end of the Utah game, um, JB fell into the trap of, well, Garland's my best player. Let's just give him the ball, get out of the way, and hope he wins the game. I hate that. I just hate it because if you're, it becomes evident about four seconds into it that this is what you're doing. I mean, then you run guys. And remember, he, he he dribbles in. Then he's got five guys on him. Then he's running back out, Pat. Then he's heaving up a 30-point or 30-foot fall away. I mean, come on. And actually, the shot had a half a chance to go in. But I would have loved to see the ball go into to Allen or somebody like that. By the way, right. Allen. Now, Allen is an example, too. This is his fifth year. And you see he has developed offense. and all. He's only 23. Uh, what he's learned to do. So these players just get a lot better over time, you know, when they get a chance to play marketing. I think they believe that they got marketing at just the right time at the age of 24 and that he had been in the NBA long enough to begin to figure this out. He came out early after a year at Arizona. He's from Finland, you know, talk about a culture shock of playing there. And then he went through kind of the same stuff in, uh, Cleveland that happened in Chicago for him coaching changes one guy likes him this this new guy comes in he's not so sure where do we play him so they are that might be a a very underrated trade for Kobe I love Larry Nash Jr. I just do I just loved everything he did but this guy you could see he he's taking on a challenge a small forward see if he were a total bust a small forward this thing's not working right yeah, and the Cavs had a plan for what they wanted to do. And, and you, you know, you listen to uh, Coach Buttonholzer the other night after the Milwaukee game. He's like, people around the league are impressed with what the Cavs are doing, and they're mm-hmm. taking notice. And that's that speaks to the plan that they have and the way JB's coaching them. 
And they don't want to play teams that really defend. They don't want to play big teams that defend. Nobody wants to play that. You mentioned before, was it the Navy? Use a Navy analogy from football, you know, where they're playing a lot different than everybody else. Even if you're better than them, you don't want to deal with them. And that's like Budenholzer and, and uh, Quinn Snyder, same thing. Quinn coaches Utah. Then we go, we didn't really enjoy that day in Cleveland. Yeah, We got out of there with a win, but my goodness, we, you know, you, you saw that in the schedule originally, you thought that could be a nice Sunday afternoon. I could get my bench some work. You, know, you never would tell that to your team, but as a coach, you're thinking that. Yeah, it's going to, you know, playing the Cavs now, it's going to be, be a 48-minute grind, and the Cavs themselves have said, we're young, and we're going to play hard to the end of every game, and it ain't going to be easy against us, So, and we're seeing that. So, All right, Terry, the Cavs have uh, the Bulls tonight on Wednesday night at home. Then Friday, they're at Minnesota. Saturday, home against Sacramento. And then on Monday, they are home against the Miami Heat at 7. So it's a chance for the schedule, Lisa. And, and the Bulls are playing well this year. Miami's always difficult. You know, the other two teams, Minnesota, Minnesota and Sacramento, you got a chance to win some games now. All right. So MLB has prohibited us from talking about the Guardians. So should we just move on? <laughs> I mean, I got an email. Kidding. I got no. That's close. I got an email from the MLB saying you can't talk to anybody like ever again. You can't even say Guardians or think about baseball. Their baseball's <laughs> wonderful, isn't it? It's just <laughs> until the lockout is over. So, all right. So, we'll... I mean, I did the I did the Wahoo Club uh, luncheon on Saturday, and it was kind of cool. I had a lot of fun with Joe Charbonneau, Lenny Barker, and and that and. You know, these are real hardcore baseball fans. And down, and they actually, there was like 150 of them filled the little banquet room of the Hilton Garden in downtown Cleveland. And they're like, beat me over the head some more. Why don't you? Because <laughs> they want to talk about trades and free agents or complain about a lack of money or something. And, you know, the, the, the lid is closed. The lips are sealed. You can waterboard me. What are, I'm like, I can't say a word. I can't even admit there is going to be baseball in 2022. It's just terrible. Yeah. There's a hot stove season with no stove being lit. Yeah. So, all right, let's move on. So uh, your faith column this week, I, I think you were um, writing at the top about how you decided you were going to do scribbles. I mean, Terry's scribbles are, all, are famous across the world and you decided to take that approach for your faith column this week. And uh, it was funny reading it. I keep when you wrote about Christmas and tips for surviving and um, treating people right around Christmas. And it, I couldn't help but think of the old Dennis Green clip from when he was coaching the Arizona Cardinals and they were playing the Bears and the Bears beat them and they shouldn't have. And Dennis Green after the game says, we knew they were who we thought they were. They were who they, we thought they were. And I feel the same way about Christmas. A lot of times like we know we're going to be with relatives. We know there's probably going to be alcohol. We know there's going to be political talk. Like you shouldn't talk politics around the holidays, but like we know what it's going to be. So why do we keep letting it happen where we, we get into spats with relatives over? Or I call it looking to be offended. You go in there yeah. just waiting for that braggart to brag. So how do we avoid falling into that trap? We know what this is. Like you're going to be having dinner with people and drinks might flow and you don't want to say the wrong thing. How do you, what are some tips you have for people on how to kind of uh, be kind to people? Well, sometimes, uh, well, one is if they, if they come up with, you know, the political stuff, you could just say, well, my guess is none of us are really going to change our mind, but 
how about when we think about and just try to swing to some memory for their family or, or a concern, a family concern about somebody sick or how can we help this person just change the subject. I've learned to do this over the years or somebody who's kind of gossiping and, you know, this, this person is, a, they go, well, you know, this guy is like screwing around on his wife and has a drinking problem. And, and I finally said, um, we know that he's struggling. We don't really have to get any deeper. And so I know usually I just change the subject to something else. And oftentimes that does stop it. You know, my, you know, one of the things they tell you is if you're talking about somebody else, how would you feel if that person heard it? Right. That'll help you clean up your conversation. So now some people are, are bad news. You just need to kind of be real pleasant, mention the weather and get out of there. Don't just stay there and fight. Uh, and I guess the other thing, be careful when somebody asks, you know, hey, what do you think of Joe Biden or what do you think of Trump? Well, the A, they don't care what you think of Joe Biden or Trump. They're just waiting for you to give your opinion. And then they want to argue. They may even want to argue if they agree with you. So I would just say, well, you know, politics makes me tired. That's what I say. Doesn't it make you tired? I mean, here we are, you know, it just makes me tired. My brain's ready to explode already. I don't need to throw politics in there. Well, that's what it always amazes me. Like we spend all day looking at phones and Twitter and Facebook, and there's all the back and yeah. forth about politics. And then the holidays come and you're supposed to be like enjoying time with people you want to be with. And then you bring all that stuff into it too. It's like, that's the time to just kind of declutter everything. Right. And just right. And and enjoy, and the, enjoy the time. And look for somebody that you do want to spend time with as opposed to just Sometimes I swear we punish ourselves. <laughs> we find this annoying situation. We go into it. And then we are, as you said, then we're surprised. We're annoyed. You know, we, we know who they are. We know who we are. And, you know, you can get out of things. I just, um, I mean, once in a while, if it's an event, you know, it's bad and everybody's going to get drunk and you don't drink and you want to be near it. Just, I'm not going. And you could, they may say, well, why? Just say, look, I'm just not. And they go, oh, you're just a prude. You're just this. They go, look, I'm just not going to get into it. That's it. Yeah, or the other thing you said you do sometimes is you'll go, and then when things start to get a little I'm out uncomfortable, of there. you leave. Yeah. I'm out yeah. of there. Hey, I got to go. Yeah. You know, I'll catch up with you later. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, fortunately now, very few of my friends, you know, have any significant alcohol issues, but I've had some in the past in my family and elsewhere. And it's rough because that is really when the filter drops. And that's not what the holidays are about. So, all right. So we know what it's, what's coming. Everybody give some thought to how your house best to go about it. Save yourself some grief. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's get into some, Hey, Terry questions. Um, hey, if you want to send us a question, Terry, every week posts on his Facebook page, looking for questions we can include on the podcast. Or if you want to just email us at sports at cleveland.com and just put uh, Terry's talking or Hey, Terry in the subject line, we will try to get it in here. So our first one is from our good friend, Kathleen Thompson. She has a Cavs question. She's been noticing how, well, Kevin Love has been doing this season coming off the bench. And she says, will Kevin Love continue to play well for the Cavs this season? What do you think, Terry? Maybe they found a role because I'm almost afraid to say that because just when you say that, something happens with Kevin with his calf muscle or whatnot. But clearly, you know, and, and Kathleen's noticed too, his attitude is much better. I mean, he's into this. And I believe the situation where maybe he just, 
he needs to be considered just a plus. He's not the team leader. It's not on him to, to, to deliver 20 points and 10 rebounds a night. Maybe physically he can't do it. And on top of that, he comes in the game with Rubio, so he can't go, boy, I'm out there with nobody knows how to play because he, he and Rubio go way back to Minnesota, and everybody in the NBA knows Rubio knows how to play. Um, and now on top of it, you see Garland growing. So, and he's got uh, he's out there with some of the big guys, whether it's Mobley or Allen or Marketing. So there's somebody else out there besides him trying to rebound. It kind of takes some of the excuses and pressure off him. So I think Kathleen's right. He's on he's onto something. You just got to keep him healthy. I know they want to keep him under 20, 20 or less minutes a game. Yeah, it seems like it's working so far. So all right, this one, another Cavs question. This one's from Matthew Graham. He says, hey, Terry, will the Cavs make a trade at the, by the deadline if they're in playoff contention? They're already looking around to see if they could pick up a, kind of a veteran scorer off the bench, which is the role they were slowly transitioning uh, Sexton into. Because if you remember, he would be starting, but four or five minutes of the game, here comes Rubio and he's out. And they were starting to spot him at different points where he could get be instant offense. Because the fa- I, I get things with fans that, well, this just shows they're better off without Sexton or whatever. No, they would be better off with Sexton in the right role, like Lou Williams or some of these scores, 18 to 22 minutes a game. Not Sexton and Garland together for 30 minutes of those minutes. That is not a good combination. So um, that's they're looking for a guy like that, but they definitely want to do something, I think. And, you know, Dan Gilbert, he was – you talk about what would make Dan Gilbert very happy making the playoffs without LeBron. Oh yeah, it would. And you know how it is in the playoffs, Terry. I mean, this whole Colin Sexton thing, it kind of smacks a little bit about like the OBJ thing where they're better off yeah. without him. But when you get into the playoffs and the defensive screws start to tighten, points are so valuable and anybody who can score. Mm-hmm. Colin Sexton, somebody they trade Milwaukee. for. Yeah, you get eight points from somebody in a play in a play in game or a playoff game. I mean, mm-hmm. that's huge. And every, anybody who can put the ball in the in the basket at that time of year is, is and create is your own around. shot. And the other thing, right. if he's coming off the bench, he's not playing a critical role. If he's having one of his kind of games where he's dribbling into three guys and shooting the ball into people's elbows, just take him out. Yep, can do that too. So, all right, so we got two baseball questions here. We'll kind of group them because they're kind of both money related. Um, one is from Tom Goodsight. He says, why doesn't MLB have a salary cap? And then Terry Ramey, she says, will the lockout, the result of whatever comes out of the lockout, will that make it worse for small market teams than it is right now? How do you feel this thing might come out in the end? And what will it mean for the Guardians in terms of You're right, Tom. Terry's questions are connected because if they could come out with some semblance of a salary cap, it would help the guardians, but they probably won't. These guys can't do anything in terms of making a significant change to the game to help the small to medium markets. For all their talk about it, they've never been interested enough to make the hard decisions going back to when they wiped out the World Series in 94. They came out of that with, I think there's some sorts of revenue sharing in that, but it's not really what you wanted. I mean, I would like to see them put a salary floor in, but in exchange for how about contracts like the NBA has, the maximum contract? This would change the ballgame for a lot of teams. I mean, the, the Indians might have looked at something like if there was a maximum contract of five years at $30 million a year 
for uh, Francisco Lindor, they might have done it. They really might because it's like you're looking down the line, okay, you know, four and an option, that kind of stuff like they have in the NBA. Um, they might, you might do it, but I don't think they want to address that. You want to help your middle market teams? That alone would. But of course, the, the Players Association is going to go and scream. Now, the hot thing is, David, they're willing to go to war for about eight to 10 players a year who would be getting these never ending long contracts. Football is very interesting how they approach their labor negotiations. They remember they, they were the a number of players wanted to get rid of the, the franchise tag, but what they did is they added players to the practice squad and they added more money for the marginal players. Cause they know everybody's vote is the same in that. So they said, we're going to really help what amount to the working class in the NFL and forget those other guys, you know, and it worked for them, but somehow major league baseball has never been able to kind of buy, get the working class of the, um, their players to go along with some of the changes that would help overall. So in other words, I don't, I'm not hopeful about anything with the guardians with that. You know, it's interesting, just real quick, the, we, we've seen this offseason MLB announce major investments in the minor league baseball mm-hmm. in terms of housing, paying for housing and, and boosting their benefits and things like that. I wonder if that's the start of something where they are going to try and use that grassroots where if they can win over the players who are making one to five million a year that that might swing in enough votes uh, down the road. Anyway, not worth getting into. Well, but it's kind it, of exactly. It, and it's so important to do that because it's ridiculous. And now you can make some money in AAA. You can make like between 68,000 and up to like half of your salary and, you know, a big weight minimum contract. But when you're talking double A and below double A, I think the max thing is like about 15 grand a year. Then you get into 12 and 10. It's ridiculous. And they are living four in a room and, and it's, it's just, uh, it, it just made no sense. So, but the flip side is, by the way, and I thought this hurt the uh, uh, mid market and smaller teams, is they cut the minor league teams down to four. Less opportunities. Yep. I mean, you could run Mahoning Valley on like 350 or 450 grand. I forgot what the number was. So, a class A owner gave that to me. So, it's not even the big league minimum. What are you saving? Good question. All right. Let's do some Terry's trivia. Staying on baseball. You ready? I think you are undefeated on Terry's trivia, Terry. So in 1958, we were talking about Rocky Calavito in your book at the top of the show here. Rocky Calavito finished third in the AL MVP voting in, in 1958. Do you remember who was first and second that year? I would not have gotten this one. 1958 AL MVP. One of them was a Red Sox player, and one of them was a Yankees pitcher. Well, I'm, I'm going a Yankees pitcher. Yeah, a Red Sox player, Ted Williams. He wasn't still around. Good guess. So Ted Williams finished seventh in that voting. Yeah, because he's the, coming towards the end, man. Yeah, the MVP, and I never would have gotten this, was Jackie Jensen. He had 122 RBIs that season, and then Bob Turley of the Yankees finished second in the voting that year is a pitcher and he was 21 and seven and had a 2.97 ERA. Number five was Mickey Mantle, two spots below Rocky. And then number yeah, that's seven, what I was going to guess until you yeah. told me. Yeah. And then uh, number seven was Ted Williams. So I thought that was interesting. I, I would never have pulled um, oh, Jackie true. Jensen out. Jackie yeah. Jensen. 
Yeah, so that's a good trivia question. There you go. Um, Terry, you've been signing a lot of copies of Vintage Browns, your new book. Um, and yeah, I think you're signing more, even more this week. How's that going? Well, basically, there's no more appearances unless I get some. But if you want, if you want signing, signed books, here you go. There are some at Barnes & Noble in Fairlawn. There is some at Barnes & Noble Crocker Park. And starting tomorrow, there will be some at Barnes & Noble in Mentor. There are some left over from, we had over 100 people at the signing at the Warren at Owl in Hudson. There's some left over at those places. And then the other thing, if you want it signed and just sent directly to you, uh, go to uh, terrypolitobook.com, all one word, terrypolitobook.com. And there you are. You can order from Amazon that won't be signed, but they'll get you a book too. So I've really been gratified. There's been a lot of interest in, in it. Um, it was a fun book to write. And so far, people seem to think it's fun to read. Could be on Esquire's top 100 football books list next year, Terry. You never know. That Let's would be nice because that would help me because it's like when Sports Illustrated did his top 100 sports books of all time. Loose Balls, a book I did in the, in, in the ABA was 10th or 12th. It was on the list anyway. So I got baseball and I got, I got basketball. So how about a football book? There you go. And I'm going to win the award for best all-time host of this podcast. That's right. That's my- <laughs> as, as Les Levine would say, of all the shows David Campbell's ever been, ever done, this is the best that he ever did on this Wednesday. I think it's <laughs> December 8th or whatever it is. There you go. Uh, miss Les. So, hey, yeah. listen, everybody, thanks for listening. Our, our audience is growing every week, and it's because of you and you sharing this with people you know, and we really appreciate it. Uh, Terry, have a great week. I'll see you at the game Sunday, and um, we'll talk to all of you next week on Terry's Talking.